Hello, and welcome to Look Both Ways, a podcast about failures of the past, pursuits of the present, and the useful things we learn when we take a more complete view of our surroundings. I'm Scott Herms, and I'm your host. I'm a senior technical director at Kinincarta. Kinincarta is a digital transformation consultancy with offices all across the globe. Because we believe in experimentation, the failure that comes with it, and ideas that make the world work better for everyone, we thought we'd develop a show dedicated to exactly that. The unrealized and failed pursuits that aim to change the world came up short, but still have much to teach us. In the second half of this episode, we're going to dive into our current attempts at transforming our energy system. But in the first half, a name you know, but a story you might not. Nikola Tesla, a man whose influence was stuck square in the middle of that nougaty Venn diagram center where commercial interest met an ambition to harness the unknown in the name of bettering the quality of life all around the globe. His early successes propelled him to living legend status quite soon after he arrived in America, marked by scientific breakthroughs that we rely on today. The electricity that powers modern life is made possible by Tesla's initially much-doubted concept of alternating current. Tesla gave us the first hydroelectric dam at Niagara Falls. The invention of the X-ray and the radio were based on Tesla's work. A unit of measurement used to gauge the strength of magnetic fields is named after Tesla as is a certain electric car company based in Palo Alto. Wait, Elon Musk actually does something other than tweet? Nikola Tesla is one of the most revered scientific minds in human history, worshipped around the world for his visionary genius and desire to improve human life. But despite his iconic status, Tesla died penniless and alone in a Manhattan hotel room. The subject at the center of today's episode represents both Tesla's ultimate ambition and the catalyst of his downfall, a 187-foot-tall, water-tower-like tangle of wood and steel that darkened a foggy corner of Long Island for nearly a quarter century. A structure whose exact function remains a mystery. was promised to change how energy is used around the world, but failed magnificently. Let's travel back to Wardenclyffe Tower. Bling, 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 bling. At the turn of the 20th century, humanity's ambition was at an all-time high. The Industrial Revolution had spent the better part of the 1800s snaking its way through the heartland, transforming prairies and swamps into twisted monuments of smoke, metal, and flame aimed at making the work of one man as effective as a hundred. This is a time when heroin was still sold over the counter to cure coughs. Cornflakes were the hot new thing, and lamps lining the streets were painstakingly lit at sundown, only to be put out in the morning one by one. Before electricity became the household utility it is today, it was a terrifying, godly element. The average person's experience with electric power was seeing it randomly streaked across the sky in devilish spider webs, or watching it connect with the ground, piece of metal, or, God forbid, a living thing, in an explosion of blinding light, deafening sound, and fire. The story of Tesla's birth has become something of a legend itself, but it's simply too good not to include. He was born in present-day Smilion, Croatia, during a historic midnight thunderstorm. The midwife delivering him thought the chaos raging overhead was a terrible omen, and declared he would be a child of darkness. To which his mother replied, No, he will be child of light. I mean, come on, it's the stuff of comic book heroes. Or villains. Long story short, Tesla was a brilliant child, 
had a photographic memory, could perform integral calculus in his mind, spoke eight languages by age 20, and quickly became fascinated with emerging technology making its way into European cities called electricity. After working in Paris for the Continental Edison Company, Tesla came to New York City in 1884 with hopes to work more closely with the man whose name appeared on his modest checks, Thomas Edison. Tesla worked at the Edison Machine Works in Manhattan fixing generators. It was a famously short-lived professional relationship that would echo well into the future. The turning point came when Edison, impressed by Tesla, offered him a $50,000 bonus to design 24 different types of standard machines to replace the company's problematic DC generators. Tesla did exactly that, only to be told that the request was a practical joke and that he didn't understand American humor. He quit. His rivalry with Edison reached a pinnacle when Tesla partnered with inventor George Westinghouse to pursue Tesla's vision for alternating current a proposed improvement on Edison's systems that Edison deemed impossible and dangerous. To make another very long story short, Westinghouse and Tesla won the chance to power the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. AC power prevailed. Tesla sold the patent to Westinghouse, became world famous, and 120 years later, this morning, I turned on my kitchen lights, brewed a pot of coffee, and asked a small robot named Alexa to tell me about the weather. The weather is okay, but I'd wear a jacket. Wonders of modern life, all made possible by Tesla's AC power. Tesla and Westinghouse won the current war. Tesla set his sights on his ultimate dream. Wireless transmission of energy. In 1899, he headed west to a place big enough for his ambition. He settled on Colorado Springs and built a lab high in the mountains. You might recognize the inside of the lab, as it was where he was famously photographed reading in his chair, while millions of volts of electricity arc and connect with receivers mere feet from his body. His goal was to relay a signal from Pikes Peak to Paris, and he got more than he bargained for. What he discovered in Colorado, I'll let him explain in his own words. I ascertained that under certain conditions, current was capable of passing across the entire globe and returning to its origin with undiminished strength. Okay, maybe it didn't sound like Boris bad enough, but no one really knows since no known recordings exist of his voice. In other words, he theorized that he'd found a way to send electricity through the air around the planet and back to his receiving station with an efficiency as high as 99 and one half percent, which is what he declared to newspapers shortly thereafter. Tesla has fired the spark flash round the world. The wizard of science says he has enslaved Earth's mightiest force for the use of man. Those are real headlines from the New York Journal on August 8th, 1897. This was also around the time Tesla announced to the world that he had received messages from Mars, thus beginning his mad scientist reputation. To Tesla, his experiments in Colorado Springs proved what he had already been working out in his mind for years. Energy could be shared anywhere across the world easily and cheaply. He returned to New York to seek financial backing necessary to make it a reality. Because, as a fictional version of Anne Morgan, JP's daughter, explains in the 2020 film Tesla with Ethan Hawke, Everything has to be paid for. Especially money. Fun fact about that movie. 
And I suppose, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, Ethan Hawke's portrayal of Tesla follows the sort of inner, retreating, brooding, private personality we've come to understand about him. But shortly after the scene you just heard, something extraordinary happens. The Tears for Fears song, Everybody Wants to Rule the World starts playing, and Tesla enters the frame. The image of a setting sun behind him. He stands still next to a microphone for about 20 seconds and then sings the whole song. It's just Ethan Hawke performing reluctant karaoke as Nikola Tesla, singing a song from 1985 in a strange whispered baritone. Then the movie just continues on as if nothing happened. It's incredible. And since we're on a tangent, let's keep going. In the late 1980s and early 90s, I was an actor in Chicago. One of the many small, scrappy theater companies that I worked with was called The Neo-Futurists. One of my fellow performers was Spencer Caden. You musical theater freaks may know her. She went on to perform in Urinetown on Broadway. Her brother is Michael Almereda, who is the director of this film. Lamest name drop ever. Okay, anyway. So Tesla's seeking financial backing to build his giant version of his famous Tesla coil. After plenty of rejection, J.P. Morgan you know, the guy with the banks, was impressed with Tesla's early successes and showed interest. At the time, a global race was afoot, the results of which would alter the course of communications forever. Italian inventor Giuglielmo Marconi, better known as Marconi, was working diligently on the first wireless transatlantic communication with a telegraph message. Tesla claimed he was not only going to beat Marconi to the punch, but he would also one-up the Italian inventor on a scale far in excess of anyone's expectations. Tesla claimed his tower would be able to send and receive not only wireless telegraph messages, but facsimiles of pictures, the written word, even audio. J.P. Morgan gave Tesla $150,000, about $5 million in today's dollars, and Tesla bought a remote patch of land in Long Island and named it Wardenclyffe after its previous owner. And, in spite of how it sounds, not after the missing fifth house of Hogwarts. What Tesla didn't tell Morgan was that he had much bigger ambitions for Wardenclyffe than sending messages around the world. Provide wireless electricity to the entire planet using only the air and the earth itself. But for hard-nosed capitalists like J.P. Morgan, an investment pitch of, let's distribute a newly discovered and scarce resource to everyone for free lacks a certain, eh, I don't know, commercial appeal. Racing Marconi was the catalyst Tesla needed to change how the world used energy to prove that the world's natural properties could be harnessed without being consumed. What exactly does that mean? First, Warden Cliff Tower would provide wireless power to anything nearby. The tower would generate an electromagnetic wave strong enough that a device would be powered without the need for wires of any kind. Second, he also wanted to dump voltage into the planet's surface so that it could be harnessed by another identical tower on the other side of the world. He theorized he could utilize the planet's already energy-rich air and soil, turning the Earth into one giant electrical outlet, thus catapulting human civilization around the world into a new age of progress. Spoiler alert. Tesla's combination of world-changing ambition and less-than-transparent intentions with investors doesn't end well. The first blow came in 1901. Marconi amazed the world by sending and receiving wireless messages 3,000 miles across the Atlantic. 
Since its invention, wireless has saved numberless ships and human lives from ocean disaster. Mankind can never forget its debt to Guglielmo Marconi. Marconi had successfully sent, via wireless telegraph, the letter S from England to Newfoundland, Canada, winning the transatlantic wireless race and starting a bold tradition which has been carried on by Sesame Street this day of celebrating single letters. This podcast is brought to you by the letter P. P. Pound for pound, the best letter. He would then go one step further to execute the first successful transatlantic audio transmission at the end of 1902, all while Tesla was cloistered away in his lab, obsessing over how to get his tower to do one of the hosts of things he had promised to J.P. Morgan. After Tesla revealed his true ambitions to Morgan, funding was cut off. Investors on Wall Street continued pouring money to Marconi. The press started calling Wardenclyffe Tower a hoax and Tesla's million-dollar folly. In 1904, Tesla took out a mortgage on the Wardenclyffe property and a second one four years later to cover his living expenses at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in Manhattan. The money was gone, and soon were Tesla's chances at making his vision a reality. Colorado Springs facility had come under lawsuit for unpaid electricity bills, ironically, and shuttered shortly thereafter. The lab was scrapped for materials, which totaled just over $100. Wardenclyffe was demolished for scrap in 1917, primarily because of security concerns during World War I and rumors that German spies in the U.S. were using the tower to communicate. It was so sturdy, it took two attempts at blasting the tower with dynamite to take it down. Once, in July of 1917, which only knocked it at an angle, and again two months later in September of the same year. In total, it was salvaged for about $1,750 worth of materials. It would go on to be foreclosed in 1922, purchased by a photograph processing company, and used as a site for dumping toxic chemicals used in the negative development process. Yay! In 2013, the Wardenclyffe site was rescued nearly 100 years after its condemnation. American cartoonist Matthew Inman used his famed internet comic series, The Oatmeal, to blast a message about the facility site being up for sale. After starting the grassroots campaign, he raised $850,000 online, which was matched by the New York City Historical Society to meet the asking price for the plot. The facility was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 2018 and is now home to the Tesla Science Center. North America's only museum dedicated to the man who changed the way we think about the world. Crazy. Considering his work is responsible for the motors in just about every household appliance, the power in our homes, the technology that led to x-rays, and laid the groundwork for countless other conveniences we take for granted to this day. So, would the tower have worked had it been completed? And what should we make of the story of Warden Cliff Tower today? Whatever you're interested in, you will see it in a new way by understanding what happened at Warden Cliff. I'm Dr. Brian Field, and I'm an associate professor of physics at Farmingdale State College on Long Island in New York, and I specialize in research in theoretical particle physics. Dr. Field is also a member of the History and Collections Committee at the Tesla Science Center at Wardenclyffe, the site located just a short drive from his offices on Long Island. 
He was kind enough to help us unpack what the story of Wardenclyffe Tower has to teach us, starting with a little Physics 101. So going in, he had this vision of creating a very large structure that would create a changing magnetic and electric field that should have powered devices near it. But he also had this idea of pumping that electricity into the ground and have it resonate with the earth so you could extract it far away. Like you would have a little tower in your house and it would power things in your house. And that is built on a bad assumption that the earth is a good conductor of electricity. He also, the same thing, he wanted to send electricity up into the atmosphere and have it uh, conduct electricity. And the atmosphere is a bad conductor of electricity. So that's probably where he went wrong. The air and the ground are bad conductors of electricity because, well, of course they are. If I knew three things about electricity, one of them would likely be that the ground is a bad conductor. It's why you should stay in your car during a thunderstorm, or why lightning can harmlessly strike a skyscraper because the charge passes through the metal frame directly into the ground. But wouldn't Tesla have known that? That's what I kept thinking the more we learned about this. How could the genius who gave the world alternating current who invented our system of electricity, who conducted all those experiments in Colorado Springs, how could that mind not know the ground is a terrible conductor of electricity? Help us, Dr. Field. You're our only hope. It's a fantastic question because he went and did, you're right, he did do these experiments in Colorado Springs. And he had in his logbook where he had set up a generator and he had set up light bulbs that would light up at further and further distances away from the lab. And even today, there's people who go on TV and they try to replicate some of these experiments and they make these specials for cable television. But, and not to sound sort of over the top about this, I think they're misinterpreting what they're seeing. Tesla thought that he could create a large voltage source or a, a kind of current and that it would return through the ground, right? That it would return through the ground. And what he was seeing was he was seeing the electricity pass through the light bulb to ground, and it wasn't returning. He was just feeding electricity into the ground, and it was lighting up the bulb, but it wasn't forming a circuit, right? It wasn't coming back. And you, know, you can be misled with this and thinking that you're creating a circuit when all you're really doing is you're pumping electricity into the air, and because it wants to reach ground, it's completing part, you know, current is flowing through the light bulb and it's lighting it up. And I think that's what he was seeing. So is that where Tesla went wrong? Did his grand vision cloud his ability to understand his own experiments? Was he simply too far ahead of his time? Or did he know better and wanted to build the tower anyway? How much do we actually know about his plans? And what can the failure of Tesla's Wardenclyffe Tower teach us? We think it can be summed up in six ideas. One, context is everything. Bad assumptions seem obvious with the benefit of hindsight in a century of scientific progress. So, to the question of, did someone with the rare genius of Nikola Tesla really get this so very wrong? Yes. Yes, he did. As Dr. Field sees it, it's worth underscoring again just how little was actually understood about electricity when construction on the tower began in 1901. At that time, the idea of what electricity was like what it physically was, was not well understood by the physics or engineering community. Only two years earlier had the electron been discovered. The whole idea that atoms had a nucleus and were 
mostly empty space, that there was quantum mechanics, that uh, what made a good conductor and what made an insulator, it was all just empirical, right? They were just guessing at what would work. Tesla himself didn't believe that electrons carried electricity. And he didn't understand the nuclear structure and, and these sort of things. Nobody did, right? In fact, the existence of atoms wasn't widely accepted until 1905. Additional context can also shed new light onto some of Tesla's other eccentric ideas, including his insistence about those messages from Mars. Almost everyone in the year 1900 thought that there was life on Mars. It was widely accepted back into the 1800s that there were probably people on Mars and people even wrote books where they estimated how many people live there. There were plans to cut a giant right triangle in the shape of a, a forest in the shape of a right triangle in Siberia to signal to Mars that we knew they were there. Someone even suggested then lighting it on fire. It really, all the way up until about 1960, there was just this incredible anticipation that of course there were people living on Mars. So it actually was not a huge revolutionary thing for Tesla to say he received a signal or to bring it into modern days. If I introduced you to some theoretical physics friends of mine and they all say, we believe that the universe has 10 dimensions, that is a very mainstream idea. And nobody, I mean, I question it professionally, but people just sort of say like, well, maybe they're right about that. I mean, they're right about so much other stuff. And I think that we have our own version of signals from Mars today that we, we don't see from where we are. Many historians believe that the message Tesla received was by no means a figment of his imagination. The machines he was building in Colorado Springs had become capable of detecting long-range signals from Marconi across the Atlantic, not Mars. Speaking of assumptions, this leads us to number two. We're really still making assumptions of what Tesla's plans were. Now, we don't know like 100% what he had in mind with the tower, because when he talked about it, he often talked about it with investors and he talked about what his deliverables would be, but he didn't really talk about the science, which was typical for him. He would talk science with scientists, but he wouldn't necessarily trot it out. Tesla was famously guarded about revealing the inner workings of his ideas, which also leads to plenty of speculation. When Wardenclyffe was being built, newspapers reported mysterious streaks of electricity shooting from the tower in the middle of the night. They talked about the vast system of tunnels that Tesla had dug underneath Wardenclyffe. Many of Tesla's written records about Wardenclyffe and other experiments were lost. First to fire at Tesla's lab in 1895, later to reported theft at the tower after construction had stalled. The FBI also seized Tesla's remaining records after he died, leading to all sorts of conspiracy theories. He died in 1943, yet still there are zero known video or audio recordings of the man. The bottom line, part of Nikola Tesla's allure will always be how little we truly know about him. Three, the economics of world-changing ideas is hard. Tesla sought to deliver the world something it lacked, not for his own gain, but for the benefit of humanity. He wrote extensively about why relying on finite energy sources was unsustainable. He wanted to extend reliable power to parts of the world that were still decades away from having it. Parts of the world that still don't have it today. But when the electrified world is still a new one, not many people saw that as a problem to solve. J.P. Morgan was not a philanthropist. He was a titan of industry who invested ideas whose purpose was to generate profit. And he was damn good at it. To bring context to his $150,000 investment in Tesla, 
Yes, it would be worth nearly $5 million today. But it was also the same amount Morgan paid for a painting just months earlier. So by that measure, Warden Cliff was the call of a lifetime to Tesla, but just another expenditure to Morgan. Today, when the need to transform our energy system is clear, or at least becoming clear to more and more of the world, would Tesla have received more financial support? Maybe. Maybe not. It's part of the inherent chicken or the egg problem of any major breakthrough in science and technology. What happens when technology that could improve the lives of countless people must first prove its business case? If the solution doesn't yet exist, but it could, it requires time and experimentation. Experimentation requires patience, money, and the acceptance that you may never get that money back. An understandably hard pill to swallow for whoever's signing the checks. Number four, Ethan Hawke is not a great singer. Oh, you didn't think we'd tell you about Ethan Hawke as Nikola Tesla singing Tears for Fears and then not play a clip of it? Welcome to your life. There's no turning back. Ethan Hawke is a great actor. Love the Before trilogy. Training Day, Dead Poets Society, Gattaca, The Purge, but maybe karaoke as Nikola Tesla is a one-time thing. Number five, Tesla still got quite a bit right. The method Tesla envisioned to deliver wireless energy and connectivity to the world may have been flawed, but he saw the impact of it with remarkable clarity. Here's what Tesla wrote in 1926. When wireless is perfectly applied, whole earth will be converted into a huge brain, which in fact it is, all things being particles of a real and rhythmic whole. We shall be able to communicate with one another instantly, irrespective of distance. Not only this, but through television and telephony, we shall see and hear one another as perfectly as though we were face to face. Despite intervening distances of thousands of miles and instruments through which we shall be able to do this, will be amazingly simple compared to our present telephone. A man will be able to carry one in his vest pocket. Nikola Tesla is often heralded as the first person to dream of the world we're currently living in, and rightfully so. Today, a prediction like that seems omniscient, like Tesla knew something that the rest of the world didn't, except for the fact that nobody wears a vest anymore. But a hundred years ago, it would have been easy to cast Tesla as a crackpot, a man living in his own fantasy world, growing more and more detached from reality, which is to say, number six, true visionary thinking is often terrifying. For two reasons. One, it usually stands alone or nearly alone in its view of how the world could be. Two, visionary thinking isn't possible without failure. The same thinking that failed with Wardenclyffe and wireless energy is also what gave us modern electricity the induction motor, the X-ray and hydroelectric power. In the case of Tesla, you simply couldn't have one without the other. He bested Thomas Edison, and occasionally his Manhattan lab shook the earth with enough force to convince neighbors it was an earthquake. You know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Which is why experimentation and failure are so important to progress. Because even when we find the wrong answer to a question, we may find the right answer to a different question that we may not yet know to ask. Here's what Dr. Field had to say. If you really did succeed at everything, your sites aren't big enough 
The best example I like to think of in this particular question is something that actually came out of high energy physics, which is to say the World Wide Web, right? So the World Wide Web was invented by Tim Berners-Lee, who was a high energy physicist just like me, working at CERN as a way of sharing data sets for high energy physics experiments. It was a very particular, very niche thing that was needed, but you could not imagine our society without it today. And so I think that there's a huge place for these sort of accidental or hidden revolutions uh, that are sitting there, and which means that there's probably hidden revolutions that have already happened that we don't see coming. Nikola Tesla was determined to revolutionize how electricity could be harnessed, and it had barely existed at the time. So fast forward to today, it begs the question, are we dreaming big enough about how we transform our energy system? The second half of this episode will focus on a promising, unproven, and often overlooked answer to that question, geothermal energy. Geothermal energy has the smallest footprint of any renewable, emits no greenhouse gases, is abundantly available, and could stabilize the energy grid in a way that renewables like wind and solar cannot. So what's the problem? Well, there are many unanswered questions, some quite similar to the story of Tesla and Wardenclyffe Tower. No, this part of the episode won't have German spy conspiracies or dramatic thunderous birth stories, but it does have earthquakes. Oh, and one more thing, a healthy dose of skepticism. How are you better than the oil companies? How will you turn off the volcano once it's started? What about our water supply? You could start an earthquake. Those were the objections of the citizens of Bend, Oregon, expressing their concerns about plans to drill into the nearby Newberry volcano. This was back in 2010, when plans for a new geothermal extraction site were first announced by a company called Alta Rock. Of all things sparking public outrage these days, being anti-earthquake seems pretty reasonable. So the task of Alta Rock and companies like it isn't easy. Convince concerned members of the public that not only is drilling into an active volcano safe, but it's actually one of the most important investments we can make in sustainable energy. dumbest experiment in, in human history. Why are we doing this? It's crazy. That's Elon Musk, founder of Tesla, the company, from a 2018 interview. Musk is talking about our dependence on fossil fuels and the impact of digging millions of tons of carbon out of the ground and pumping it into the atmosphere. There are people far more qualified to break this all down than I, but, but here's the quick version. The world adds 51 billion tons of carbon into the atmosphere every year. Carbon gets trapped in the atmosphere, which heats the planet causing a destructive chain reaction which benefits exactly nobody. To avoid the worst effects of climate change, we need that number as close to zero as possible. The need to transform how we use energy is clear. The right path to that destination is much less so. Which brings us to the often overlooked geothermal energy. Here's generally how it works. The Earth's core is as hot as the surface of the sun. That heat warms up water underground. When that water gets very hot, it carves its way through the Earth's crust and escapes in the form of steam, which is how we get geysers and hot springs in places like Iceland and Yellowstone National Park in the US. In order to use that steam as an energy source, wells are drilled into the Earth to capture it. The steam turns a turbine, 
and electricity is generated. The advantages of geothermal energy are powerful. Virtually zero emissions, the lowest carbon footprint of any renewable energy source, and a roughly 4.5 million year track record of steadily available heat. But of renewable energy being used, it still accounts for less than 1%. One of the biggest challenges thus far in geothermal energy has been location. For example, Iceland runs on 100% renewable energy, most of it from geothermal. Why? In landmass, Iceland is about the size of the state of Kentucky, but it has 130 active volcanoes. So, huge pockets of geothermal activity are quite easy to find. Also has a lot of herring, but we're not really talking about fish right now. It's much harder to access that type of heat in places with a different geology. It's not that the earth under Illinois or Kansas doesn't have that same heat. You just have to dig a lot deeper to get it. So unlike solar and wind, conventional geothermal has been limited to very specific places. One of the other major issues is energy density. Because oil and gas, you can pull out really a, a few hundred gallons a day you know, and make money. We spoke with Jeffrey Garrison, Alta Rock's VP of Research and Development, to learn more. Whereas we got to pull out... 100,000 gallons a day because the energy density is so different. You know, water doesn't carry that much heat or that much energy as opposed to oil. Oil carries a lot more energy. So, in terms of bang for the buck, conventional geothermal is to oil what a Mike's Hard Lemonade is to about 100 shots of tequila. Simply generating awareness of geothermal is also a challenge. You know, it's easy to go outside and feel the sun in your face and say, oh, there's a source of energy, or the wind blows through your neighborhood and you say, oh, there's a source of energy. It's another thing to point at a dirty hill and say, there's your source of energy over there. <laughs> it, yeah. just isn't, right? it just isn't an intrinsic idea. If only there was a better way, a superior, perhaps, upgraded approach, a platinum version, first-class geothermal, the Geothermo Admirals Club. It's called Enhanced Geothermal Systems. Enhanced Geothermal Systems. Enhanced Geothermal Systems Technology. And this brings up the subject of Enhanced Geothermal Systems, or EGS. This is what Alterock set out to create at Newberry. An Enhanced Geothermal System. We asked the Alterock folks if I could refer to it as Geothermal 2.0. They strongly advised against it, but Jeffrey did help us understand what's it all about. It's creating a reservoir to hold water where there isn't one. So going into rock that does not have a lot of permeability or water flowing through it, you have heat, but you don't have fluid. So in an EGS system, we go in and create that reservoir. We create that, basically, we turn a solid mass of rock into a spongy mass of rock. Which is why enhanced geothermal systems could be such a big deal. Creating a reservoir where there isn't one means geothermal doesn't have to be limited to places with a steady volcano surplus. It could happen anywhere. And if it could happen anywhere, that means we could unlock a virtually emission-free, readily available, renewable source of energy capable of powering the planet. What about those pesky earthquakes the fine folks in Oregon were afraid of? Well, they weren't just imaginary worst-case scenarios. In 2006, commercial geothermal project in Basel, Switzerland, triggered a magnitude 3.4 earthquake. 2017, a site triggered a magnitude 5.5 earthquake in Pohang, South Korea. In both cases, nobody was hurt. 
The Pohang quake caused $52 million in damages and plenty of concerned citizens. While both projects were shut down, those stories loomed large in the minds of people living in the Bend, Oregon area near Newbury. You know, I would say when we started this in 2010, they were terrified. That's completely understandable. The idea of drilling into a volcano can sound loony until you actually look at it and realize that you're barely scratching the surface. The volcano doesn't really notice what you're doing. You're not even a tick on the back of a dog when it comes to drilling a volcano. Alta Rock's approach to avoiding seismic events is extensive. A critical part of it? Getting the public to see why their approach has been designed to avoid the mistakes made in Switzerland and South Korea. It's a tough point to make with the, with the general public because you've got to educate people. In those situations, they picked locations that were where they were in contact with an actual fault line. In both cases, they injected fluid into an active fault and injected too much and it, it overpressured and allowed the fault to slip. Now, I know in the case of Pohang, they actually had a mitigation protocol. And as I understand it, they didn't follow their own protocol. We made a really big effort to educate people. And actually, the people, the local community around Newberry Volcano, they're now our advocates. The Newberry Project was greenlit, setting out to be part of a program under then-Obama's Department of Energy called FORGE, Frontier Observatory for Research in Geothermal Energy. Man, they love their acronyms. Newberry would be one of a few proving grounds to demonstrate how enhanced geothermal could power the planet. Alta Rock planned to build two wells. The first one was built as planned, but in 2014, things got more complicated. Because producing the energy is really only half the battle. In order to put that energy to use, you need two things, uh, an off-taker and something called a Power Purchase Agreement, or PPA for short. For our purposes, an off-taker is a buyer, someone interested in buying and using that renewable energy. A, a large business, most likely the type of energy company that powers your home. A PPA is a contract declaring that intent to buy. So if a company wants to purchase renewable energy, they go shopping. And when forms of renewable energy like wind and solar continue to become cheaper, the much more expensive geothermal option becomes a tougher choice. What we discovered was with the price of renewable energy coming down so much with solar and wind, an EGS system was never going to compete. We were never going to get down to a price point where EGS would be attractive to utility off-takers. We, essentially, we'd never be able to get a power purchase agreement, a PPA, which is the absolute essential thing to have in hand before you can develop a geothermal project. Alta Rock was forced to put the project on hold, in hibernation mode, as Jeffrey put it. So enhanced geothermal helps overcome the limitations of geothermal from an energy standpoint, but the economic barriers are still significant. The challenge to Alta Rock, develop technology that brings costs of geothermal down so they can compete. Their new pursuit, go deeper to find the water that's hotter, much hotter, as in 800 to 900 degrees Fahrenheit. It's when water becomes supercritical Fun fact, supercritical is also what my wife calls me when I explain the various plot holes in the original Toy Story movie. I'm just saying, if Buzz thinks he's real, why does he freeze when a human walks in the room, huh? Okay, anyway, supercritical water, well, Jeffrey helped explain. And supercritical water is a phase of water where it behaves like a gas, like it moves, it will move through 
a reservoir quickly and easily with low viscosity, like a gas, but it'll absorb more heat from the rock than more like a water. So it's actually mm-hmm. an ideal medium for sweeping heat out of a reservoir. And doing some of the calculations, some modeling work, we find that supercritical water can carry anywhere up to four to five times more energy per mass. Four to five times more energy per mass helps overcome the density issue, which helps bring costs down and allows geothermal to play a bigger role in the renewable market. So, supercritical water sounds promising, but comes with plenty of unanswered questions. There's a lot to unpack in looking at super hot rock. It's not just getting to heat and not just managing the heat. There's also a lot of chemistry issues. The water, how to handle supercritical water is really poorly understood. The behavior of water in these conditions is poorly understood. So this is what we want Newbury for. We think this is a really good opportunity, a good location to study and unpack all these really intricate problems. There's, there's so many issues, but none of them are insurmountable. Jeffrey's optimism is actually kind of comforting. There are no shortage of obstacles on the road to practical, scalable geothermal. But with proper experimentation at proving grounds like Newberry, Oregon, they can be overcome one by one. One such experiment, something called millimeter wave drilling. It's similar to heat ray technology originally developed by the U.S. government for crowd dispersal purposes. But for drilling purposes, it melts rock, like butter. We've been working at MIT, and the labs at MIT have done this, where they've taken a two-inch diameter heat ray, I call it a heat ray because essentially heats, it would, millimeter wave energy is like, it's a little bit longer wavelength than microwave. So but what it does is just it heats the rock to its melting point, to its failing point, and we actually create a hole to the rock. And so we have a project trying to develop the technologies that allow us to use millimeter wave to drill into rock. And the advantage is for super deep operations, like 10 kilometers or more, the millimeter waves don't lose their energy. If the millimeter waves don't lose their energy, that means drilling is more efficient and effective which again means costs come down and geothermal energy takes a big step forward. Newberry is the low-hanging fruit. We can prove it there and turn it into a place to develop technologies. We start there and then we'll go deeper and deeper and circle the opportunities, the locations where we can do this will just grow and grow. And for people who might fear that we're too entrenched in our ways, that our dependency on fossil fuels to power our world has gone on too long to be overcome, Jeffrey says it's worth remembering that in the grand scheme of things, this is still a relatively new challenge. Think about electricity. You know, it hasn't been around that long, right? We haven't been an electrified society for very long. We're basically, we're still a startup civilization. One thing that really stood out as we learn more about geothermal, particularly in the context of Tesla and Wardenclyffe, is that, yes, we can confirm. Big, visionary thinking is, by rule, terrifying. Drilling into an active volcano is terrifying. Assurances that it won't trigger an earthquake or an eruption help, but inherently, it remains somewhat terrifying. But that doesn't mean we should stop, because, you know, it's even more terrifying not changing our energy system and relying on finite resources that poison the planet. The research and experimentation necessary to develop these types of solutions Millimeter wave drilling that melts rock, supercritical water, really any new potential form of safe, renewable energy, require investments whose immediate returns are anything but guaranteed. Which is why we've dedicated this show to experimentation and the failures inherent to it, because it's necessary. 
The idea of embracing failure has become such a Silicon Valley tech cliche, but in practice, we actually often have little tolerance for it. It's human nature. We say that failure is a good thing, but when it happens, we tend to do at least one of three things. One, panic. Two, say I told you so. Three, race to publish an article on Forbes.com in which we declare said thing is dead. All it takes is a failed geothermal well or a picture of windmills in a landfill for people to conclude that, see, this is why renewable energy will never work. Just like stories of failed generators and building fires prompted the father of J.P. Morgan, yes, he's back, to urge his son not to invest in electricity as it was a fad that would soon prove obsolete. So, if you hear about geothermal energy plants not working, that doesn't mean the process isn't working. Researchers and scientists, people like Jeffrey Garrison and Alterock, and in any field of renewable energy will undoubtedly get some things wrong. Just like Nikola Tesla, the father of modern electricity, got the physics of electromagnetic fields wrong. In the pursuit of geothermal energy, companies like Alterock and geothermal researchers around the world continue to work on getting it right. And while we're certainly still far from a sustainable energy system, it's their breakthroughs and failures that will eventually, hopefully, seem obvious to us. To close us out, Here's what Jeffrey Garrison of Alta Rock had to say. There's something about human nature that allows us to be comfortable with a new thing very quickly, and we forget how quickly we became comfortable with it. So we think, uh, I think of 20 years ago when the internet was nothing, and right. now I can't imagine life without the internet. You know, what's going to be 20 years from now? It's, it's, there's something about the human condition that is challenging for us to envision complete fundamental change. But when it happens, we go with it. That's a wrap for our first episode of the season. This episode was produced by Amy Sudo and Max Parcell. Chris Mitchell is our sound engineer. Follow us on Instagram, send us your feedback and ideas, and stay tuned for new episodes every other Tuesday. We have some exciting episodes in store. Thanks for listening. Or if you prefer to stay off social media so the FBI won't know where to find you to steal your files when you die, feel free to build a terrifying 147-foot tower to beam a single letter of your choosing. To me, or to Mars, or to anywhere your dreams may take you. <laughs>